just that we need solutions now. So I'm trying to engage those groups now to go beyond just believing in it and actually advocating for it. And, and also just creating a space to say, we do meant to do this as climate activists. We have climate science on our side. Did you know that there are half a million metric tons of nuclear waste temporarily stored at hundreds of sites worldwide? In the U.S. alone, one in three people live within 50 miles of a storage site. No country has yet successfully disposed of commercial spent nuclear fuel, but it's not for lack of a solution. So what's the delay? The answers are complex and controversial. In this series, we explore the nuclear waste issue with people representing various pieces of this complicated puzzle. We hope this podcast will give you a clearer picture of nuclear waste, the whole story. We believe that listening is an important element of a successful nuclear waste disposal program. A core company value is to seek and listen to different perspectives. Opinions expressed by the interviewers and their subjects are not necessarily representative of the company. If there's a topic discussed in the podcast that is unfamiliar to you, or you'd like to more closely review what was said, please see the show notes at deepisolation.com slash podcasts. Hello, I'm Kara Hulak, Deep Isolation Communications Manager. My guest today is Zion Light, a British author and environmental activist. She's the co-founder of Emergency Reactor, a new effort to raise awareness around the importance of nuclear energy in the fight against climate change. In 2020, she worked as UK director of the group Environmental Progress by Michael Schellenberger. Welcome, Zion. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks so much for having me on today. Let's start by uh, you sharing your journey on the road to becoming an environmental activist. You've described yourself as caring deeply about the earth since you were a child and said you had eco-anxiety. So maybe share what that is and why do you think you've always felt that way? I was quite young when I first learned about global warming at school, which is what we called it at the time. And I did have a kind of eco-anxiety. I used to have nightmares that everything was going to go underwater and my parents sort of didn't really know what to do with me and they didn't understand it and actually generally then it wasn't very well understood anyway and people didn't really seem concerned about it um so I started getting involved with different campaigns you know trying to get my parents to recycle and going vegetarian I was quite young um you know sort of 10 11 and I think they just found it very annoying and they didn't really understand what I was doing but that was the beginning um it was until I left home at 18 university where I sort of found a group of people who had similar concerns and we we set up our first group and then I from there I kind of got involved with a lot of different activism over the years and what did you study at university did you follow that path for your education no I actually um studied English literature. I come from an art background, but then later I went on to do a master's in science communication because I became more interested in science. And so that actually that's a big part of, you know, what we need to be talking about. Um, and was kind of unlucky in a way that I didn't, you know, people often ask me, are you really interested in science? Really excited about this? Why didn't you study it as a kid? Well, actually I grew up in a very poor inner city area where we didn't have very education options and I really didn't learn very much at school. Science was not really an option. Um, someone of my background at that time. 
And then how did having children impact your environmentalism and lead you to write a book on green parenting? What were you hoping to convey to your readers with that book? It's interesting because I think a lot of people now are kind of talking about not wanting to have children and how awful it is, um, how awful the world is, and you know why would you want to bring kids into this world? And I feel like I got a lot of that out of my system when I was younger and I was really worried. And then getting involved with the groups and taking action and seeing that there have been some gains. I know that they haven't been enough gains over the years, things have been shifting that's actually made me more hopeful and more likely to bring children into the world which I did um but again, what I found with that was that I had children and I wanted to you know teach them about the environment and climate change and there were just no books about it at the time my oldest daughter is 10 um there's a lot more literature out there now for them as you know then they're, they're learning about climate change at school and, and there's so much now but when I when I first had her there was really nothing and the kind of green parenting books I was reading um just, just didn't really have a lot of useful information so I I, I authored the book um green parenting to help other parents like me who might want to help teach their kids about things and also live with a low carbon footprint as a family because that was you know kind of what everyone was talking about doing but it's it's much harder if you if you have children but um also I think you know people think what's the point if you have children they're bringing emissions into the world but actually having three children is seen as kind of a sustainable number um because we have this kind of aging population so I don't you know and I don't think it's really about number of people anyway I think we're a bit distracted talking about that I think it's about how we live and, and our consumption really and so there's, you know, obviously it's a huge topic, the topic of environmentalists being supportive of nuclear energy is being key in the fight against climate change. So when did you first become passionate about that type of energy source? Uh, was there a point where you were against it and you changed over? Or tell us about your journey to um, being such a passionate supporter of clean energy. So for the most part, most of my life I was against it um when you join these kind of green groups everybody's against it and they all just against it um I noticed that there was a difference between me and other people in some of these groups because also for example in the green parenting community a lot of people are anti-vaccination and I never was I always kind of understood value and the need but I was kind of different because I did this thing to my kids that they didn't approve of so I noticed quite early on that I had some different ideas and I thought maybe that's you know from a very different background or immigrant you know a, a group grew up in very poor uh, in a city Birmingham maybe you know I thought maybe I have a different understanding of things and this sort of then led to the energy revelation for me which is that I was kind of against and I was you know writing a book on how to live with less energy and I agree people should we really should be less wasteful but it's um, not to say that developing countries shouldn't have development and lots of you know energy, which we have, right? We're very energy rich, we're very lucky. You switch, you switch the light switch on and you expect the light to come on. You, know, you don't have to live in darkness. You don't have to wash your clothes by hand. Um, and I have an understanding of that because that's what my parents came from and that's what they left behind. And it's very hard for them to be behind um, in the sixties because they left all their family and all their culture behind for a country that they knew nothing about. You know, they came to Britain because there was this big industrial boom in Birmingham at the time. There were lots of jobs. Um, they were offered these factory jobs. Um, you know, I always had this kind of understanding of what it, why they left this place behind, which was their home really. Um, it's quite a, a, a phenomenal thing to do and to come here and not have that, those support networks that are really important in those communities. They did it because they wanted high energy lifestyles, right? They wanted lifestyles where, you know, 
um, people have access to things that they don't have back in this little village uh, in the Punjab in India. And, and, and billions of people around the world live like that. When you talk about poverty, it's, it's energy poverty, really. And so although I've always cared about climate change, I was also involved in lots of other groups when I was um, a teenager, I was in Amnesty International, I was in War on One, I cared about these issues as well. But what I sort of no started noticing was that there was a lot of joining up between kind of the green group and the human rights groups. And to me, these are these are actually really just the same issues. Um, and if we care about, you know, people and planet, you know, you can't separate people out from nature. So when I started realizing I was wrong about nuclear, you know, people, it was a, fr a friend of mine who's an engineer who sent me something about it was specifically about Fukushima, which I had been told had killed lots of people. And he sent me this research, very clearly said no one died because of the nuclear meltdown. People did die because of the tsunami and earthquake. It was really um a really big thing for me because I believed completely the wrong thing for years and I told people the wrong thing and I felt bad. And I was like, oh maybe I'm maybe I'm a bit like the anti-vaxxers and I have the wrong views. So I started looking into it more and he was very helpful. He was very good at you know not pushing me, but if I asked for a resource he'd send it. And you know, this is where you know is really getting into science anyway and thinking, oh, you know, everyone should know these facts. But what I noticed was when I'd go back to my green friends and tell them, we don't want to know that. They'd say, Who's gotten to you? We don't want to know that. And I kind of went, Oh no, this is different again between me and them. But I would say to them, you know, I understand about saying people here should live with less, but what about people in developing countries? And this is where the real kind of punch point came for me, and I became passionate about energy because their arguments are today still we don't get to develop don't get to have what we had because we we mess things up and i don't agree with that i have all these relatives in india who want what we have right they want lighting that works and it's it's not just about lighting we think about energy we're so used to it we don't think about how we only have this infrastructure and a high quality of life because we had lots of energy which was okay it had, had consequences and lots of fossil fuels but what if we could have done that without consequences and wouldn't still be a good thing it means your kids live longer they're healthier you live longer you have the air quality you know um, you have access to education you have infrastructure that allows you access to hospitals which don't have blackouts which are really you know bad blackouts and bad people die during blackouts when i started realizing that nuclear was as dangerous as i've been led to believe fossil fuels are as dangerous as i've always known um, I realized, hey, we should, we should, we've almost been kind of tricked and told to be against this thing that could actually displace fossil fuels, which renewables can too, but the renewables still need that base load power, and that is nuclear. Um, so I, I became passionate about it really because of energy poverty, because I thought someone needs to have these, show these opinions out there, because telling these countries now, um, you know, as you'll have seen around COP26 and people saying India's so bad, not phasing out coal. Well, can we really say that to them? You know, I understand that we need to get out, we need to phase out coal, but then they're going to need adoption, lots of energy so that they can develop infrastructure the way we did, which we did burning a vast amount of fossil fuels. And actually, if they don't do that, they're, they're really in water, literally, because they are, these are the countries in the global south that are going to suffer the most because of climate change. And they can have infrastructure now to protect them. They can develop to protect themselves. They cannot do that with vast amounts of energy. And then you've got these environmental NGOs saying, we don't want you to have fossil fuels or nuclear. A few wind farms or solar panels isn't enough. Like they can have them, great. And, and in some places they work really well. It's not enough. It's not what we had. We had vast amounts of energy. So that's, that's really why I'm out there and why I've become passionate about it. It's because I care about these people. 
Well, I love how you bring your um, your your history and your family background into this. I mean, do you remember that? How old were you when you um, came to the UK at, or was this more your parents experiencing this? So I was born here, but my parents took me, <laughs> my parents took me to India a few times. Um, they took me when I was very young and I only have very vague memories, but they took me when I was, um, I think I was 19 or 20, it was a really good age actually, go to this village in the middle of nowhere. And I didn't really understand um, what they come from until then. So we, you know, you get flying to the nearest airport before I gave up flying and a four hour journey to get to this village. And then you get to the village and, you know, you have to understand about there not being any infrastructure. There's no, there's no Google Maps, right? There's no internet, there's no Wi-Fi. There's no charging points for your phone. You're completely cut off. There's no, um, there's no street signs. You know, we had to keep stopping. I mean, we didn't drive there because the roads are, are crazy. So we had a driver and uh, he'd have to keep stopping and asking people, do you know where this family with this surname lives? That's how we found this little village in the middle of nowhere. So people ask me, well, what's the village called? I can tell you it's in Ahimsa. I can't tell you where it is on a map. These places have not been mapped. These people live with nothing. They live in absolute poverty. And then you go past these, you know, shacks and, and sometimes you get some buildings because mostly because people have moved out and been able to put some money into those areas, you know, but millions of people live like this and you really get a sense of it when you're driving through and it's just millions and millions of people crammed in, living very low carbon lifestyles, but under duress, you know, and they don't want to live like that. They would take the first opportunity to not have to because live with serious consequences of illnesses and the lack of treatment and a lack of health care and vaccinations and all the things that we're really privileged to have and um yeah you know then I, we stayed there for three weeks it was really hard for me you know it didn't I, I'd never experienced anything like that before I was kind of like angry at my parents you know why have you put me here with there's nothing there's nothing to do there's nothing to do I mean all right people spend time together and they're rice farmers so they, they do that but I mean it's a really, really dire way of living. And I'm not saying that, you know, people can really, I think the Green Movement have this, has this thing where they idolise it, they idolise poverty. Oh, they live on the land and they have communities. I even had someone say, they don't have mental health issues because they live in communities. Oh, they do have mental health issues. When your baby dies, or it's a year old, you have six babies and there's a chance that most of them won't make it. They have mental health issues. Sure, they do. Just not writing blogs about it that you read about because they don't have access. They don't have a voice on the stage. And that's where I realised that, wow, someone should be should be getting this out there. I mean, everybody thinks they know about poverty. But do we really do we really appreciate that two billion people live in the state? It is energy poverty. It's that lack of infrastructure that we built through lots of, you know, energy and development. And it's economic development. And you can do that without increasing emissions. There have been countries that have shown that you can do that. So you can, you know, they're also separate issues, but they get lumped together by this movement, which just thinks living back on the land is really lovely. And, and no, it's not actually. No, it's not. And, and, you know, I love nature, but when you live somewhere like that, where there's wild snakes everywhere and there's no protection from them, you know, I remember just hearing awful stories about people by snakes and having horrific deaths is the nearest hospital is four hours away even if you had a car which most of them don't right they don't have cars even if you I mean you know even if you had access it's just a very uh unhappy existence it's, people are just surviving basically and if they survive the day then they're happy they're grateful um and that's that's it really um and they want don't just want lighting and hospitals they want laptops and mobile phones they want everything that we 
our privy to. And that is part of having high quality of life. And we have to make peace with that in the green movement instead of saying, no, 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 they can't have more. Sure, we can live with less, but they also need to have more. So um, it was really eye-opening. And I am glad now that my parents took me, even though I remember when I left, they said, I'm never coming back here, <laughs> which is really sad because all my, you know, all my, so much family there who, who really love and miss us. And I just... I, feel, I felt guilty coming back and looking at everything that I have that they don't have and will never have access to, that they'll never, you know, uh, to enjoy. And not just that now, but, you know, my family, they're rice farmers, as are many people in these countries in the global south. And now they're suffering the consequences of frequent drought. And that's going to become more common. They're going to have to migrate. Where are they going to go? They're going to come here. Our borders are shut. You know, they need options in their countries. They need um, solutions. One solution I was talking about is desalination it's when you take seawater and you turn it into drinking water it works it's proven it's been used before guess what it requires huge amounts of energy so even the solutions they could implement they cannot at this moment because they're not they haven't got resources and the infrastructure that we've got that's going to you know protect us so all of these things are really important to talk about because for a long time we've heard the opposite in these green groups and i was one of them i was one of those voices so i'm kind of I correct my wrongs even you know having having made peace with all right I have a lot of different views to these people in this movement actually we've been saying the same thing for a long time and it it hasn't really worked right just saying people should live with less for a long time hasn't actually worked we continue to find new novel ways to use more energy so let's instead focus on clean energy options because actually that benefits everyone you get cleaner air you get uh, lower emissions and uh there's no harm with wanting a, a, a good quality of life. So take us to your founding of your new website, Emergency Reactor. I was really struck by the emergency vibe of, of your campaign and your social media. Uh, the point of that is to push the public to have a serious conversation about nuclear energy and the fight against climate change. So what was the transition tipping point for you to launch that? I think it was um, what I was just saying, which is that I realized that we've been banging on about the same things for decades. For decades, we've been saying the same thing, live with less, drive less, eat less meat. You know what, I do all of these things. I never learned to drive. I've been vegan since 2002. I have done all of the things and it hasn't made a difference. Let's be honest. We now have cryptocurrency. Now that's not something that I'm involved in, but I know that it uses vast amounts of energy. And actually, if we're honest and we look across the history of humankind we are always good at using more energy this is actually just something that we do you know look at the advent of the internet um, this is just what happens you get a better quality of life you use more energy even going right back when first uh you know uh, ancestor discovered fire and fire became the technology and they use that for many different things to help develop human and drive human progress and i don't that's a bad thing necessarily it's just that we kind of need a fire 2.0 now we need to move away from the polluting things we realize they're bad and that's where nuclear is actually we're lucky that we have this option because if we didn't have it i don't know what i would tell people to do because saying live with less hasn't worked even if we all did that and most people are trying to it's just so insignificant on our actual overall emissions if you look at the data most of them come from energy because we live high energy lifestyles we need a lot of energy for Things like, you know, hospitals um, and, you know, just being able to have lights on so that you can, you know, not sit in the dark in winter. These are things that we've really come to take for granted, I think. And um, 
yeah, the solution is really simple, which is we replace the dirty elements. So let's look at fossil fuels for a minute. Everybody says they know fossil fuels are bad. But when you say fossil fuels are bad to people, they're like, yeah, okay. And they continue to, you know, pour the kettle, electricity is coming from coal. They don't really care. Uh, so long as they don't have to live near the coal-fired power station, but it's coming from somewhere, right? Someone's having to live by it. We, we in Britain, we import coal regularly from poor countries where people have to live with the consequences of living next to coal-fired power stations. We would never allow one here. We, we will import all the time, um, especially when you know it's not windy or sunny enough, and, and that capacity of renewables drops. That's usually when we have to bring in the coal. So, and that's because we don't have a lot of nuclear. So you know, I say to people, well, you know, fossil fuels, even if climate change wasn't happening, the pollution from fossil fuels kills at least 8 million people a year. It's very easy to look up. There's lots of good research on it. And that's a conservative estimate. And again, these are our most marginalized people. These are the people breathing the dirtiest air. You know, the, the women and children, this is, you know, who, who, who suffer the bulk of the impacts of the climate crisis. And then we talk about climate change. That's how bad fossil fuels are. And that's before we talk about the fact that the whole industry knew these products were harming us way before we knew, way before scientists had got onto this and had solid research to say it. And they hid that data. And in fact, they put billions into funding climate denial. These are all real things. You can look them up. You know, these really happen. If there's a bad guy in the room, there it is. Let's get away from that. So then you say nuclear. People have all the emotional reactions. They should be having to fossil fuels. And it's really interesting to me that this happened. Because you just think, but what did nuclear do? This okay, there's been a few accidents. The numbers of fatalities are about even from solar and wind. That's it. You know, people in all sources of energy in these huge industries will sometimes have accidents and there will sometimes be deaths, but they're very, very low numbers. And this was something that I'd been misled on, completely misled on. When I looked into the numbers, you know, I, I, I was shocked. I was shocked at, at how misled I'd been. And then you look at the fossil fuel deaths. Because I've just said millions from air pollution alone every year. Nuclear has never, never reached anywhere near those numbers, not even the thousands, really. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I've started trying to unpick that with people and, and unpick where those fears have come from and say, there are things we should be afraid of. Climate change, let's be afraid of climate change. If you, you know, if you want to be afraid of anything, the impacts of that are terrible. It is going to hit the global south hardest. It's going to be worse for them. Those regions will become too hot for humans to live in i mean this is how serious things are but approaching it with a humorous ideology where you just sort of say oh well we're all doomed and you know we should just we should just go back to living these really basic lifestyles that is not going to help them and actually when we, we have this problem as well in these these green groups in the west again it comes from having this privilege for so long where we then say we're going to live in an apocalyptic nightmare our children are going to suffer in an apocalyptic way two billion people already live in that apocalyptic nightmare, it's called poverty. They already live with that instability. Look at what happened in Syria, which was driven by frequent drought, which was already been linked to climate change. Look at what's just happened in Afghanistan. This instability is going to impact those countries hardest that haven't been able to develop and have the stability that we have enjoyed for a long, long time. So it's really important that people understand that for me, it's not specifically about nuclear. It could be spinach was a solution i'd be advocating for spinach it is a scientific solution this is what the consensus says which is that we need renewables and nuclear to decarbonize the planet and that's it there's no there's no debate after that you might not like it you might have been against it for a long time that is what the scientific consensus says and it's the same scientific consensus that says that climate change is human driven and needs tackling 
And that's a very scary thing, but luckily the same scientists are saying there are mitigation options for decarbonisation and a combination of renewables and nuclear. It's the only way we're actually going to get away from fossil fuels. And the problem that I have with this is that for years I've been in these groups saying we don't need nuclear or fossil fuels. And now I've come to realise that all we've done is given fossil fuels a seat at the table, pushing nuclear away. And it's actually very easy, as I said, to push nuclear away. People get very scared very quickly. All these negative pop culture references in their heads. Actually, we should have that about fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are literally choking us and our planet. We don't seem to have a stronger response to it. So there's a lot that needs unpicking in that. And the reason I started doing it is, A, I felt guilty because I'd been on the wrong side uh, spreading this information years. And B, someone has to do it because otherwise in 10 years, we'll be having the same discussion about how do we get off of coal? We cannot displace coal and gas without nuclear. We, that's why I'm advocating for it. You've touched on um, one of my questions, a few of the points about barriers to the adoption of nuclear energy, which I think as part of your campaign, you want to see, you know, be 50% of the energy mix. Um, you know, you mentioned personally that you had, you know, a vision or a, a perception of Fukushima. Um, and then you also just mentioned accidents. Um, obviously with the podcast, we're interested in the waste issue. So maybe talk about the barriers to the adoption and your, your personal feelings about that and how you're, um, you know, what do you, what do you see in the environmental community, uh, what people are talking about in terms of, of why they're against it? I used to think that waste was this like green acidic liquid. <laughs> and this, let's be honest, this came from the Simpsons. <laughs> Yes, Join the club. <laughs> but that is what I thought. So again, when I was kind of in my Fukushima period, looking into things going, I believed all this wrong stuff about Fukushima. Was I wrong on everything? I got to waste eventually and I had all the same questions. So I do understand people have those work because I had them, I've had these beliefs. And I found out that it's not liquid, it's solid. It doesn't leak if you put it in water. A tiny amount of kind of solid cylinders. And what they do is, yes, they take the uranium out of the ground and it already has power in it. They use that power so there's less, right? It, and then case it again in concrete. It's a really, really simple way of putting it. So it's actually a natural element that exists naturally in the earth. We take it, we use it, to create clean energy, which is good. And then we bury it again. And the best example for me of, in terms of safety, because I know people worry about the safety is first of all, again, no one's ever been harmed or killed by nuclear waste. Like if they were, we would know about it. It would be front page news. It's never happened. And that even is true of Fukushima, where nuclear power station, the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power station, got hit by a tsunami and an earthquake, had waste stored on site in these big concrete canisters, and they were not damaged. You know, they bury it in such thick concrete, you know, it's it's tested so that it can withstand anything. But that actually was a real life example. Again, it had been harmed by it we would have known and I understand people are afraid of the idea but it's not what happened and again you've got to look at fossil fuels where actually people are harmed by fossil fuel waste all the time you know what we're doing with fossil fuel waste we're storing it in our atmosphere how bad is that that's how it's stored right <laughs> nuclear waste is actually really well stored really well managed um you know and actually probably better of all all of the industries because I've read a little bit about solar panel waste where the panels can't be recycled and they're just left in landfills and they can be quite toxic so they need to be recycled I know people are looking into that but nobody worries about that nobody cares and they do contain cadmium you know they contain lithium these are toxic chemicals so 
again, it's an, a case of really hyper-focusing on this one aspect. Isn't that dangerous? Isn't that bad? It is really well-managed. And, you know, you can't have anything that's zero risk. There's always a risk. But we haven't had anything happen. I've given you the worst case scenario of Fukushima. So I think we need to be careful about for zero nothing has zero risk right even a vaccination we know they're safe for most people but the occasional person might have an adverse reaction you wouldn't say we have any vaccinations because actually the consequences more people will die of whatever it is you're vaccinating against and that couple of people that might have an adverse reaction it's the same thing with nuclear energy there will be some accidents there will you know what fossil fuel accidents oil rigs catching on fire you know deep water horizon spill how many how many uh, in animals were impacted by that these are huge numbers that don't even get calculated we tend to look at human deaths and not not actually what's happening to the living planet so it's just so so safe compared to the alternatives it's almost ridiculously safe so how have you tried to educate the public about this issue obviously you have your website um you know how have you seen what methods have you seen be successful in overcoming these types of fears so the thing I actually find really positive that makes me really hopeful is having the conversations is enough for most people. So there is a small minority of people that are just very anti. It's like a fundamental, almost like a religious belief, and you won't get through to that. And it's quite easy to spot that group and just think, my energy is not worth it here. And that's true, actually. In science communication, we learn that um, about vaccination as well. There's always like a small group, fundamental belief, just lead them but most people are in on the fence they're in different groups and the right information will help them to change their mind so one thing that we do have been doing is this change your mind tool where we take um a bunch of volunteers and a bunch of free bananas and we for britain um with stalls in public areas and we just invite people to have a conversation and we have a uh, about nuclear and, and it's quite challenging for people and i know that because i used to be the sort of person who'd be challenged and you'd go go up to you and say Who's paying you to do this? Why are you doing this? But they're all just ordinary people that come along to help out. It's a great team, really great community of kind of science-led environmentalists, which is really a growing movement, I think. And um, we hand out free bananas. And the reason we use a banana is because they're above, above average radioactive. A lot of people don't know this because they don't understand about radiation. A lot of their fears of nuclear about radiation, whereas actually everything's naturally radioactive. Um, so it's a good... good conversation open and most people like bananas and then you know we have all the information so whatever they think the issues are it might be based or it might be um radiation or it might be fukushima comes up a lot um or it might be something else then we just give them the information and we give, we have leaflets that they can go away and look up themselves which actually i find people are very good at doing that especially younger generation they're very savvy about fact checking so you know you can say say what they what you need to say and then they, they can go away and look it up themselves and most people i found have been gone oh, I actually agree with you. I didn't know any of this. So the problem is the lack of information and the huge amount of misinformation. And the reason I started doing these stalls is because I walked past one in Bristol, this big city here, uh, which was an anti-nuclear stall. And I, I went over to the stall and there was so much misinformation. And most of it was confusing energy with weapons, which is a totally different thing. It was very fear-based. It had this huge picture of the atom bomb, like really huge and um, scaring people. And I went over and I said, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't you be more scared about climate change? And you know, it's actually a really, really scary thing. And they got very defensive and uh, and said, no, no, but we don't need nuclear to combat it. You know, we can do it with renewables. And I said, well, no one, nowhere in the world has managed to do it with renewables alone. In Germany, you know, it's not for lack of trying. Germany has tried. And actually, Germany's really struggled easing out the nuclear power plants, putting lots of money to renewables, which is good. It's made them cheaper and more efficient. But 
had to use more coal in the meantime. That's what happened. So that's a good example. And they they were kind of like, yeah, yeah, but you know, it can be done other places. You know, what about what about Paraguay? They did it. They had uh, clean energy for a day with renewables. A day's great example on a sunny, windy day. But what about every day? You know, I had these conversations, but I realised I was kind of wasting my time because we weren't gonna we weren't gonna reach any kind of agreement. I noticed a lot of passersby kind of stopping and listening. They gave me this idea to go out and do what they were doing, but with actual scientific information and with a lot of scientists who do come along to these events. We did one in Bristol, then we did one in London, and they're so successful. So for the London event, we bought 500 bananas. Each banana is a compilation because you hand it out, and they were gone like halfway through the day. We had hours left on the stall, and we couldn't believe like how many people wanted to come and talk to us. And there were even people where I'd open the conversation by saying, what's your opinion on nuclear energy? Do you have one? And the person would sort of say, Bad, but I don't know why and then we talk about it and they go yeah okay thanks for telling me that you know they just didn't realize so actually just having the conversations is enough. You touched on something about the waste that's very true is that um, you know it is in in these temporary storage containers it is safe um, but they were never intended to be a permanent solution and you know well know that scientists you mentioned should be it should be deep underground, um, you know, so do you feel enough is being done for governments to uphold their responsibility there to per permanently dispose of it and actually get it underground? And um, do you feel that if this happens more quickly, this might help overcome some of these fears about, about the waste and, and hopefully hasten its adoption as a clean energy? Well, actually, there's a there's an amazing new thing now, which is that they can recycle the waste. So this just happened. It started happening in lots of European countries where they've got a good program for, for nuclear, basically. And you can just constantly put it back into the reactors and use up use up power, basically. Um, I mean, it's more complicated than that, but that's what we should be doing with it. That's what we should be doing with it. Um, I don't know if you know, but when the Soviet nuclear weapons program was dismantled back in the early 90s, they actually reused all of that in, in um, nuclear reactors for energy in the US, which I would say to people is the best use of like, let's, that's what we should do in a climate emergency. We need clean energy, get rid of the weapons and recycle them into clean energy. This is great. This is a really good and cheap energy for everyone. But there are lots of better things we could be doing. Unfortunately, we hardly even ever even get to that point of the conversation. I think that's why it doesn't happen in a lot of countries. So if I, if I get past waste and radiation and everything else in a conversation with someone at one of these events or in a panel or any discussion, you eventually might get to you can also recycle it. You also got these SMRs coming in. You've got advanced tech, which is even more efficient. All of this stuff that. that governments aren't even considering that if they're still at this really basic point where they're saying well do people want it or not and really people have to show that they want it or then they want climate change that's that's what it comes down to so that's kind of where i'm at with trying to push people in the direction because then they can go away and they can find out themselves about yeah, actually we can recycle this stuff and that's what we should be doing and that you know um some countries do do it you know countries with good, good programs for example france france actually sells its waste to other countries who then recycle it who reuse it um, and, you know, France has, but France has had, you know, over 70% of its electricity from nuclear since the 70s because they built lots of reactors back when the rest of us were being anti-nuclear and made us as, as more dependent on coal. I say to people, imagine if we'd all done what France did, we wouldn't be facing a 1.5 warming world right now. But anyway, we made that mistake. But let's not make that mistake for the next 20 years is basically my message. Um, we do the stalls and we do, I do a lot, we do a lot of outreach, you know, um, public speaking, 
had a presence at COP, which was really good. And again, the same thing with people coming over saying, "Is it, are you promoting this? Is it, it sounds bad. You know, I thought nuclear was bad. And they're really shocked to see climate activists who are actually supporting it. But then they're very quickly on board when they go, you know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. You had a fun way of uh, of communicating your views. Um, like you mentioned COP26, I wanted to ask you wore a wedding dress to promote the union between renewables and nuclear energy. You know, that was that was a fun. Um, I mean, who's your audience? Who are you trying to reach? Who do you want to most inspire to take action? So the dress, so <laughs> this thing is that it was the uh, famous AOC dress that became that viral meme. Uh, but it said build more nuclear on it. So it's quite kind of uh, recognizable and eye-catching. You can see when someone recognized what it was because they were like, oh my goodness, taking pictures and then go, what does that message say? And someone actually came up to me and said, you mean that ironically, right? And I was like, no, 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 we should build them. And I started saying decarbonization pathways. He was like, no, no, I completely agree. I'm just shocked to see someone actually promoting it. And also that's very brave. And I said, it seems brave, but actually more people agree than you think. It's just that for a long time, we've listened to these minority kind of angry, shouty voices, but a lot of people are, are actually on the fence or pro-nuclear. And that's, that's part of getting that message out, making sure it's talked about. Um, originally, the idea was just to do this wedding, which was between nuclear and renewables. Uh, nuclear was given away by scientific consensus and, and uh, Cole turned up and tried to stop the wedding and take renewables away, booed him away using science. And uh, it was just a very fun theater we did it several times um, at the entrance of COP, lots of people stopping and taking pictures and asking questions. So it was a good, it was really good kind of public engagement. You know, exactly what I've done, to be honest, in activism for years. It's just a, I mean, I don't even know if I'd say it's even a different message. It's still climate action. It's just not traditionally what people think of as climate action because nuclear's in there. That's more what it is. Um, it was interesting because we had a couple of hours, um, lots of people getting there's a whole team of us and we, we need to get to the same site. So I kind of got dressed inside COP in the blue zone and I was waiting in the blue zone under that earth, you know, for people to turn up so we could go into the action and just standing there, not, believe, I mean, I could have just actually just gone in the dress and just stood there all day because, you know, everybody's walking in and out, all the world leaders and the journal and the map journalists that just ran over and were like, nobody looks different. I can't, you know, everybody's there in suits and I'm just wearing the same dress. And also then saying, what is this message? It's actually a really good way of getting that message out there and really unusual. Um, and yeah, just standing there for 20 minutes and got in lots of different press and lots of people coming over and, 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 and also people just coming over and asking, why is that the message, you know? Um, and that wasn't part of the intention, actually. I think really I could have just stood there all day, every day and, and, and had an impact just standing there in that dress. <laughs> It was more, we did the theatre piece, kind of public engagement, and we recorded it. And also just show people that it's okay to go out with this message um, and be creative about it. And we also marched on the climate march because, again, you know, a lot of the pro-nuclear people were like, oh, we won't be welcome. And it's, don't be silly. We, of course, we're welcome. We're in the IPCC report. You know, these are world's top scientists saying we need nuclear. That need, desperately needs a presence at these marches. But we did get a lot of people coming up to us and saying, you know, someone came, it's funny, someone from Extinction Rebellion came up to me and said, who's funding you? And I said, who's funding you? Because I used to be a spokesperson and I used to meet the donors. So I know, do you know? And, and instantly she was like, you're on lights, aren't you? And I kind of, I've earned my dues, you know, I've got a right to be on this march because I've been doing it for a long time. But it was quite a funny encounter. Um, and, it, and it is challenging to people, you know, it was challenging for me when my friend was talking to me about nuclear and been anti for a long time. And I'm so glad and grateful that he did it. So now I'm just sort of doing that in the world. And there's no way I think do it in a non-challenging way because it's a very polarized issue. Same with you know, vaccine communication, all kinds of scientific things now, GMOs. 
and uh, that's just the reality of where science communication is at but doing it in a fun way is a great way to put a community make it fun and you know just uh, a human face on something that people have is this kind of Mr. Burns evil industry? No, that's that's the fossil industry. Nuclear hasn't done anything that bad, actually. Tell tell us about some of the different opinions you've observed in different generations. You know, being at COP COP twenty six, seeing you know all sorts of from activism to to the le country leaders. Um, you know, is there hope that your generation and younger will finally be able to make change happen uh, in the climate change fight? I think so. I think um, my experience has been that younger people are so worried about, first of all, they're so worried about climate change. So that's their first worry. You know, whereas the boomer environmentalist generation, the first worry was nuclear because they grew up in the Cold War and it was scary. And they do use weapons with um, with energy. And I'm always saying to people who bring this up that actually a lot of countries have a nuclear weapons program, but no energy. And other countries have energy program no weapons i mean britain has both we have the bomb already so it's not like we're going to get more weapons because we're getting more energy actually we should take resources from weapons and put them into energy so um you know there's a lot of those fears though in the groups who grew up around it so I do understand that it's really kind of a deep you know the c and d groups especially some of the old school greenpeace people wwf also very anti and it's a shame at cop because there's a blue zone where we were based and there's a green zone which is specifically kind of the green solutions and all the new applications that applied got rejected which which happens every year but you know that's got to change at some point because it is part of the scientific consensus and um and yeah so we, we were in the blue zone and you know there were lots of amazing people they you know stand there all day and just talk to people and a lot of people came over to us to ask us about nuclear and again i found mostly people are positive there were a few aunties they were from that generation and they're not going to change their mind did have their own anti-nuclear stall actually which i was surprised was allowed in ocop um i suppose they had fossil fuels involved as well so anyway um so generally positive but especially positive among the young men members and actually if you look at the groups the group that i'm part of it is mostly i mean not to say it's never the older generation because we do have a few amazing older members it's mostly young people um because they care more about climate change so when they go and research solutions and they find nuclear there just straight away like yeah okay why wouldn't we want that um the bit i'm trying to do is persuade them that actually we need to advocate for that really strongly because there's a strong against it which has had uh, a lot of impact over the years whereas you know for renewables they don't really have a problem renewables rewilding replanting people love these things it's great i don't need to be out promoting them really um but nuclear is the bit that's missing and it's actually one of the biggest pieces of the puzzle if you want to displace fossil fuels so yeah there's a definitely a different um in the generation that's coming I'm really hopeful for them. I'm really hopeful when they become the politicians and the CEOs, they're going to make really good evidence-based decisions, I think. And a lot of the decisions that are being made now that are not very uh, science-driven are from that older generation because they're more ideology-driven. Um, so one thing that's happening that we saw at COP was this real kind of divide between a lot of pro-nuclear um, advocates and politicians and a small minority of anti uh, nuclear ones who actually are very um also very um yeah i mean i don't know if you've seen this but uh, you know australia's kind of uh, sorry austria's energy minister just said that you know austria's going to sue the eu if they if they prove nuclear as a green as a green energy source which is ridiculous because all the evidence shows it is it doesn't contribute massively to air pollution it doesn't drive catastrophic climate change i mean come on you know you're, you're safe living next to them it, 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 
anyway, but that's what's happening. So that is happening with these older school politicians. But even in countries like Austria and Germany, when they polled people, a lot of people um, don't want them to shut down their reactors. And a lot of young people especially don't. And I think especially in Finland, where they are very pro-nuclear anyway, um, when they polled people, they found young people were like really, really super pro-nuclear because they learned about it and they understand. And the older generation still very anti. But, you know, I think that will change over time. It's just that we need the solutions now. So I'm trying to engage those groups now to go beyond just believing in it and actually advocating for it and, and also just creating a space to say, we do get to do this as climate activists. We have climate science on our side. That's, that's all we need, really. Is there anything I didn't ask that you'd like to leave our listeners with today? Um, only that you should get involved with the emergency reactor. We're really a uh, fun group to be part of and we're always running lots of different campaigns that you can get involved with. Um, just go to emergencyreactor.org and sign up to the mailing list because I send out what we're doing on the list uh, in a newsletter every now and again. And you can follow us on social media pages. We're also a good place to direct people to if they have questions about nuclear because we have this great team that answers questions and they'll always give you resources as well. So you can go away and read at the facts. We're really on that. I think we get past this kind of one just says something and you believe it. No, we'll say it, but we'll also back it up with research. And if you're still not sure, you We've got climate scientists on board, we've got engineers, we've got people that can actually speak to you. And it's worth it. I know it seems like a lot of work, this kind of one-to-one -one, um, engagement, but it's what we did actually in Extinction Rebellion when we started talking about climate change and no one was talking about it. And now everybody's talking about it is we went out and we gave talks and we talked to people and got the information out there. So don't underestimate the power of your voice and get involved. Thank you so much for joining us today, Zion. Thanks for having me.